the Pediatric Lounge, a podcast taking you behind the door of the Physician's Lounge to get a deeper insight into just what docs are talking about today. From the clinically profound to the wonderfully routine and everything in between. Welcome to this, the fourth episode. With us today is Dr. Sogol, an independent pediatrician who is board certified in pediatrics and a fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics. She's also the CEO of ABC Clinic, where she practices pediatrics with her sister in the Houston metro area. In addition to her role as CEO, Dr. Sogol has started a successful mindfulness coaching practice and launched a podcast. Today, she will be sharing with us five things not to do while CEOing your private practice. Welcome, Dr. Rogu and Dr. Sogol. A pleasure to have you in the lounge today. How are you, George? Pretty good. We're here again to elevate good physicians and say good stories about them on their successes. How are you, Dr. Sogol? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. This is fun and exciting. And where are you joining us from tonight? I am in Houston, Texas, down well, south. <laughs> um, I see that you are a native Texan. You went to Texas A&M and then Baylor for medical school. Yeah, so I uh, was actually born in Iran. We came from Iran, Tehran to Houston. <laughs> and here since I did all my training undergrad at A&M and then I actually did my first two years of med school at Texas Tech and then transferred the third and fourth year to Baylor. So I graduated from Baylor and then stayed on Texas Children's because it has an amazing pediatric program there. I wonder if you cross paths with two people I know at Baylor, Dr. Feigen. I have a really funny story about Dr. Feigen. He um, loved Baylor Med students. Part of um, the reason I went into pediatrics because he really recruited Baylor Med students into his program. During residency, he was very hands-on. He would come and do our grand rounds with us. We would have Feigen rounds once a week. He was like an encyclopedia. The super difficult cases, some resident would bring it. And then he, of course, he would go and give you the differential. And it was probably 99% of the time the diagnosis was right. And then he would quote the page number from like Feigen and Cherry book. It was just an incredible man. Did you uh, ever play tennis with him? I did not, but we went to his house. First year of residency, he would have a get together at his house and um, his wife. When we were in the emergency room, he would come in at 4.30 in the morning, every morning on the dot. He would weigh himself. That's the first thing he did. And then he would come in and he would make his rounds. Any interesting cases you want me to tell you about? And sometimes we did and we, you know, we borrowed his brain. <laughs> he was an amazing human being. He was a mentor, it seems. Yes. And that's what we need. We need physician mentors. Yeah. You know, this yeah. kind of story of the residents going to the program director. I mean, I remember going to Steve Shelloff, who wrote the pediatric book for the AAP. He brought everybody to his house. I'm not sure if that happens anymore. Yeah, I think it happens on Zoom sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but going to the doctor's house, the director's house, it's like a big deal. Yeah. Did you cross paths with Dr. Mark Ward at any point? 
Yes. So Dr. Mark Ward was our attending in the emergency room. He became program director of the residency program. So yeah, super, super nice guy. So very calm, very grounded while we were running around frantic as residents. <laughs> he is just a wonderful human being. When I crossed paths with him in Chicago, he had a beautiful two-year-old girl. She must be 30-something by now. Oh, yeah, a and a lovely wife, but very, very smart, kind. He did both ID and uh, PTR. Did do but ID. what an awesome human being. I mean, it's one of those joys in life when you meet a colleague like that. Now, you're going to have to slow me down because if we start talking about mindfulness, we'll just talk for the next three days about it. <laughs> I was wondering how you came about finding or discovering mindfulness. Yeah, yeah. So I have my own practice with my sister. She's also a pediatrician in Houston, Texas, and we, we are going on 15 years of private practice. I finished residency. I had a kid. I didn't work for four months and I got super bored and I was like, I can't stay home with a kid. So I went and worked in private practice with a solo practitioner. We did a job share with my sister for two years. She had an amazing practice. We just had different visions. We went and opened up our own practice and our practice is unique in the sense that it's in an underserved area. It's about 70% Medicaid. It's in a Hispanic area. We had one clinic there, and then there were a couple of like private peds people. When we opened up the clinic, there's a huge need. And so we just exploded by within three years, we we outgrew the space. We had eight rooms. We had hired another provider. Then within five years, we moved out um, into a, a space that we bought that was that we have about 27 rooms and eight providers one PA and then seven physicians. So needless to say, I worked myself to death. You know, I didn't have, I didn't have any mentors in the business sense, but I didn't have mentors in kind of the personal development area, right? Everybody's mindset was like, go, 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 do, 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 do more, hurry up, get there. Kind of that's, you know, just like overachieving and like the urgency that I worked from. And that's kind of my personality as well. So then at like 40, which is usually what we see in in women specifically midlife I was exhausted like I call it post-call fatigue just I would sleep for 12 hours and I would be tired I pulled back my hours at work but I was still tired I stopped going to kids anything I did I was just exhausted exhausted I started reading I started reading about just self-development. And I read a lot of books. So a lot of like the spiritual guys, Ram Dass, Wayne Dyer. And, um, and I started looking at the way I thought, what the things that I thought about myself, the emotions that I had been really um, avoiding, right? My, you know, my biggest belief was like, okay, you have to work hard. You can't feel, you can't stop to kind of connect. It was like, I was in this like constant, like do, 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 produce. And that's why I think our clinic was so successful because we were always keeping up with the latest and like bringing in, you know, PCMH and telemedicine and EHRs. I never stopped to be like, okay, well, maybe we should time for yourself. So did you read some books on mindfulness? Like, I don't know if you're familiar with John Kabat-Zinn. Have you read any of his stuff? 
I have not read his, he does the MBSR, right? Mindfulness-based stress relief. Yes, because I was wondering if you use mindfulness for depression. So I read a lot of like the old school, like spiritual guys, right? Like I, so I'm from Iran, you know, Rumi, one of the 13th, uh, the 13th century poets, all of his work is mindfulness. Hafez, which is another po- poet in Iran, all of his work is mindfulness. So this mindfulness has gone back thousands of thousands of years. And so I kind of went back to my roots. So so how are you using it in, in yeah. clinical care? Are you using it for depression, anxiety, ADD? Yeah. Yeah. So I use Which one? It, it, mostly anxiety, some depression. So with the teens, especially, especially during the, after the COVID, you know, Texas, Houston specifically didn't have that much of a lockdown as New York did. Like my daughter was out of school from March to May and then that's it. Then she went back to school. <laughs> like it was all face to face. There's a huge incline in mental health in the kids that come in for anxiety and depression. And, you know, I, I give them a lot of breathing techniques, like super breathing, simple breathing techniques that they can do. I bring their awareness to what they're thinking about themselves. You know, the kids usually fall into two categories. It's the perfectionist ones that are making, you know, honor roll, AP, an athlete, a thousand different activities that that are super anxious about like failing or not getting into college. And then there's the ones that have the socioeconomical like traumas and abuse that are beating themselves up and they're kind of in this victim mentality. And I find kids are so much more open to hearing this stuff and applying it versus the adults. So it's been great. It's been great on both. It's what they call the child's mind. How did your sister fare through all this? I'm just louder than her. (laughs) (laughs) So she has a completely different personality. And I think that's why we do so well working together. Like I'm this high, strong, like, ah, and she's just very calm and reserved and grounded. So whenever, yeah, my sister. So whenever I kind of go up, (laughs) me down. So she did well. She had some anxiety around COVID really well yeah let me go back to your office so you now have you said seven physicians one pa and 27 exam rooms that all 27 rooms yeah do you have a clinical dashboard like george does to help you uh, navigate your do's and don'ts no he's talking about the clinical dashboards for metrics and quality programs and things it's outside it's you know, the EHRs, if you recall, it started as paper. Then you okay. have horrified paper, electronic charts to yes. write your progress note. Now it's all about population health. Office practicum is really good uh, to you. Yes. Getting it out and mixing it up and putting pretty pictures to it is a little complicated. Yes. So that's yes. why you need third parties for that. Uh, they don't have a clinically integrated network. They should actually. Okay. They need a leader. Do you have a a non-physician executive that helps you run this? or Yeah, you- so there are, I think one of the reasons that we're successful is that we are a family-run clinic. So it's, there's 
four people, oh, five people in our administrative, uh, four people in our administrative team. It's my sister and I, and we do all the medical, we do all the doctor stuff, the medical protocols, all that kind of stuff. And then we have my brother-in-law that's the practice, practice administrator. So he's all the money stuff, right? The trends, the money, the bills, all that stuff. And then have actually my cousin, which his background is engineering, and he does like the reports that you're talking about. Well, let's get into the the meat of this com- conversation, which was you made five big blunders as the CEO of the group. Yeah. Uh, number one, what was the worst thing you did, and how did you get out of the trouble you got yourself into? Yeah, I think one of the worst things that led specifically to my burnout is. I refuse to delegate and I see this over and over and over. Well, how did you learn to delegate? That's a big problem in practice. I had the same problem because doctors are overachievers. They have to control everything because you're taught in residency that you're a captain of the ship. So I learned to delegate. I'll tell you, Dr. Sokol, I need you to go do this. And I'll come back and ask you, did you do that? That's where a lot of people fall short. And you can't make it like a command. Can you please go do this? Come back tomorrow. Did you resolve this? How did you resolve it? Let's resolve it together. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm a complete control freak. You know, the biggest thing my children taught me is just to let go and not be able to control them. Because have one that's exactly like me that does not like like to be controlled. What I would do is I would like have this project and then I would... I would assign it to people, but not really, right? I would assign it to people, but then I would want them to do it exactly like me, as fast as me, right? Mm-hmm. That was the expectation. And and people work at different, uh, you know, pace. And I'm super, super fast. I just, just, the way that I'm built is just, I do things every fast. But so I expected others to operate exactly like me. And I got super frustrated when they didn't. And so I would be like, I'm just going to do it myself. Like nobody wants to do this. Like nobody cares. I'm just going to do it myself. And I did that for like a really long time. So what was your number two biggest not to do oh, as a CEO? Okay. I would try to delegate, but then I would micromanage. <laughs> okay. Micromanagement. So how do you got over micromanagement? Micromanagement, I actually did not get over micromanagement until COVID. COVID was like a pivotal point in my life where I was like, I, it it was my lowest point where I was like, I'm so freaking tired. I can't do this anymore. Like I hit like the lowest point and I was like, I'm just going to let people, like we have these amazing supervisors in these different positions and I literally, I was like, I'm just going to go to work two days a week. So so you're not recommending that you catch COVID to stop micromanaging. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what was your number three? Don't do as a CEO. This is kind of do as a CEO. So I never liked Paul. Like, I didn't like writing policies and procedures, right? I thought, like, I thought it was just really... Because again, I knew what to do in my brain and I thought everybody else had the same brain at me. So they would just know what to do. So it was like from the beginning, if you're going to start a practice, have protocols written, especially office policies. And it makes it so much 
easier um, when you start hiring, right? When you start getting bigger and you start hiring and your and your departments get larger, then when you have those policies in place, you could just be like, oh, there you go. What was your fourth don't do as a CEO? My fourth is don't work yourself to death. <laughs> Take breaks. Take breaks. Take uh, you know, uh, step away from the office. It kind of goes. My fourth and the fifth go together. It's like pull yourself away from the office. Take breaks, and then allow your staff to use their magic to do what they can. Because when you're there and you're breathing down their necks and you're micromanaging and you're not delegating, they feel completely suffocated. So whatever strength that they have, that they have brought to the job, you're not allowing them to perform at that level, right? Because you're just, it's its very, my management was very like fear-based now that I look at it. I'm going to be totally honest, right? Like everybody is afraid of me because they're like, oh my God, what if we do this? And then it's like wrong. So Where is I that learned? Somebody teaches that, some mentor, somebody before us. I think, I mean, like George, think about residency. Right. I'm not pediatrics per se there are some attendings in pediatrics that are very like cutthroat fear-based but like in med school go back to med school like I had a horrible surgical rotation experience it was awful like I got hit on the hand in the OR with instruments right where I was like okay in here and not talk and just like nod my head and agree with whatever they say I'm sure all of us had have has had some experience there. And then maybe some of us in our childhood, like how were we raised, like all that, as we know as pediatricians, affects your your thought patterns and your beliefs and that the way that you feel. You bring all that from your childhood into adulthood. I, I would have to add that um the lack of sleep and the exhaustion mm-hmm. also yeah. leads to your shortness with people. Yeah, I, I don't want to be called at three in the morning over a Tylenol dosage. Yeah, but we don't in private practice. That doesn't happen. Yeah. Well, and, I guess it used to it used to happen in the old days. They don't need to call for every little Tylenol dosage. Yeah. Um, Add in the stress of maybe having kids, maybe having a toddler, an infant, a teenager. And so lots of stressors from different places. And that's why mindfulness is so great is that. Mm-hmm. You get to process those things. You understand where they're coming from, right? You process it with yourself instead of projecting and yelling and screaming, which is kind of where I live for a really long time. (laughs) Do you think this burnout stuff is limited to physicians or? No, not at all. Anybody? Not at all. It's limited to humans. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, it seems to be a physician story these days. The other thing that really helped as I was working through my burnout and learning about mindfulness, I was much more aware of how my staff was showing up, right? Mm -hmm. So instead of literally the old Sogol would have pushed through COVID. We got to see as many patients. We got to do this. We got to do that. I, I really put limits. We said, because in our office, a sick visit is seen within 48 hours. Like literally, that was what we stood for. And that's why we grew so fast. We never sent anyone to urgent care. And then when COVID hit, we're like, dude, it's impossible. Like, I can't do that. Even if I work 24 hours a day. And so we said, okay, we're going to have this amount of sick visits. And whenever it gets filled, then people have to go to urgent care. And that was super difficult for us. It was difficult for the patients. But I said, I have to protect my staff. I can't work them to death. So 
We always try to end the podcast with two questions that I like. And one is, what are you reading today? Oh, <laughs> but it's totally not. It's, it's very radical. Is it interesting? So let me tell you. Yes. So this is like for women. This is not interesting for men. But let me tell you, since we have a lot of pediatricians here, Dr. Shafali has two amazing books on parenting. It's The Awakened Family. Conscious Parent, Conscious Parent or Conscious Parenting. Amazing books for those parents that that don't want to go the traditional like hardcore way of like tough love for their kids. I had a lot of difficulty with my oldest because she was like totally like type A, like controlling, like opinionated. Like well, That's a great kernel of, of, of knowledge there. We'll add that to the show notes if people are interested in those books. You know, Sobo, I wonder before you ask him a question here, do you think, I've seen a lot of physicians before me that they go to work, they work really hard, they do, they're very successful, they, they keep doing their thing forever and ever and ever, but that's all that they know how to do. I think that's where the problem is. You know, I should be your poster boy for burnout, yet I never had it. Well, because you do, you're like in music. I see like five guitars. There you go. I play twice a week in a band. Regardless of what happens, I always go. Yeah, but that, that's your outlet. That's like your meditation. Have to have it, yes. Uh, yeah. So thank you very much for joining our podcast. And we look to seeing you again in the podcast or at a meeting. Thank you so much for having me. This is my pleasure. All right. Take care and keep on doing good work in Houston. <laughs> Bye-bye. 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 Thank you for listening. This has been a production of the Pediatric Lounge. On the show notes, you will find links to our co-host and other important notes as well as a timetable of the topics discussed today. Don't forget to follow us on social media and subscribe to wherever you listen to your podcast. Leave us a great review as it helps us greatly. In the meantime, we will see you next week. The Pediatric Lounge. The conversations are not intended as medical advice and the opinions expressed are solely those of the host and the guests.